The scripture reading today is from Exodus chapters 2 and 15 and Numbers chapter 12. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to the bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Pharaoh, sorry, this must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. When the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his chariot drivers went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had indeed married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask now that as we gather here today, that you would help us to believe that you have seen to it that we gathered here, that we're here by your, by your doing, by your arranging, and that we are seen by you in all of our complexity right now. You see us in all the ways we get it and the ways that we don't, in all of our contradiction in all of our beauty, in all of our fragmentation, your response is always to move towards us in love. Help us to trust that in this moment. Give us grace 
to be present to your already presence here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, well, actually, I don't know, almost 20 years ago now, I got the chance to go to Istanbul, Turkey, and I got to go to see the Hagia Sophia, which is the oldest, uh, one of the oldest mosques um, in antiquity. It's where the great theologian Chrysostom once preached because it was a church before it was a mosque. And then after it was a mosque, it was a museum, and now it's a mosque again. Um, and I went during the museum phase, and uh, one of the beautiful things you, you learn there is that if you had a chance to go, is um, um, they have, when it was in the museum phase, they really did a good, work, good job of trying to get to uh, seeing the real beauty of this, of this amazing ancient structure, and they discovered there were all of these mosaics underneath the plaster and the painting, and they have to dig painstakingly through to get to the mosaics. And so as you walk through, you can see some spot or two where the mosaics are there, dug through all the plaster and paint, and you just, you just long to have all the plaster and paint gone so you can see all the mosaics, because it's absolutely gorgeous. There's a certain sense in which, as I think about this series, and in particular this story of Miriam, is no exception. You have to dig through layers and layers of patriarchy and politics to unearth the glory of Miriam and what a remarkable and courageous and heroic woman that she is. So I know the scripture reading may have been a little bit confusing because it's taking us back to these, but these are the major snapshots of where we find this person, Miriam, older sister of Moses, daughter of Jochebed, and heroic, courageous follower of God. So when reading Exodus, I like to start by asking who's the original audience. That, ha- that helps a lot. Imagine yourself as someone who's lost your nation. It's been destroyed by the most powerful army on earth as you know it, and you've been shipped off a thousand miles from home to be assimilated into this empire's machine of acquisition and oppression. Who are you? You're starting to ask. Who are we as a community? All those promises from God, they're now down the drain. We don't even know who we are anymore. What's our origin story? These are the kinds of things that people ask. And so a group of people who have been whispering these origin stories like their ancestors before them start to write these down. And they write them down in fanciful literary form with a pastoral intention. This is not just bare history. These are writings that are, incur- that are meant with a pastoral intention for a group of people who are trying to remember who they are. And so they are crafting especially their story of release from captivity in Exodus in a way that harkens back to the cosmic realm, to their own creation story. The same words are used in Genesis and Exodus. The same word for formless and void, chaos, the same word is used to describe slavery in Egypt. And those original hearers would be able to connect those dots. Oh, oh, our time here, our time enslaved, our time now in exile is not unlike the earth when it was formless and void and God was able to bring life out of it. Therefore, God can bring life out of this for us now. Do you get the idea? See, that's what's going on here in these passages. And so, the words used for chaos, I said that already. The waters were split in the second and third days of creation. God separated the waters so the Israelites fleeing Egypt could have safe passage. The the associations just go on and on as we read 
the book of Exodus. This is why scholars call this mythicized history. Now, a conservative scholar came up with that phrase, so don't put me up on heresy charges yet. (laughs) So, Exodus is a story rooted in some way in history. By mythicized, I'm not saying it's made up or untrue or even a lie, because religious scholars use those kinds of words differently. Old Testament scholar Pete Enns put it this way, a myth is a story about the gods at the dawn of time that helps explain why things are the way they are here and now. Ancient people in general were quite keen on seeing the world around them in light of a bigger reality, namely the cosmic realm. Myths connect these two worlds. So one more thing to remember, and that is that the Hebrew Scriptures are a text in travail. It's not meant to be a perfect commentary, for example, on the actual character of God. It is the record of Israel coming to understand their God. This is why Christians call the, what Christians call the Old Testament corrects and challenges itself even within the pages of the text. An understanding of God as a fierce, violent warrior who's praised for killing the enemy is perhaps Israel's oldest view of God, influenced by their ancient tribal-based warring culture. Over the century, other metaphors for God would emerge, including gardener, planter, potter, lawgiver. Later in the Old Testament, God even appears opposed to the very acts of violence that were once understood by humans as divinely declared. So this happens. That's why it's called a text in travail. For example, in the book of Nahum, the Ninevites are bad. But in the book of Jonah, the Ninevites, God has love and compassion for. It's correcting itself years later. So many examples of this, I won't go into all of them now. But that's why it's an alive text. So when God's depicted, and that's what they are, actions in these stories violate the God revealed in Jesus, the God Jesus called Abba, we can be sure we're reading how Israel was understanding their God in their time and context. So the joy of coming to know God as He was revealed in Christ is to know this. Before we get into Miriam, we have to say this. is to know this, that God's single disposition toward me, toward Miriam, toward Moses and Aaron, toward Egyptian pharaohs and horsemen, toward you and yours, is one of unconditional, unwavering love. Period. Never forget that as we delve into these ancient stories. Now, let's look at Miriam, okay? Miriam, the older sister of Moses. Part one, Miriam, the courageous. Miriam, the courageous. I mean, we know the Hollywood story well, don't we? I mean, Charlton Heston is placed in the river so he can grow up to be best friends with Yul Brenner after marrying Yvonne DiCarlo in scene. Or we could refer to the Prince of Egypt or Ridley Scott's of God, Kings, and God and Kings, which had Christian Bale in it, not talking like weird Batman, but I digress. <laughs> so we have some things we have to forget about this story in order to rightly remember it. So let's try to rightly remember what's happening here. Here's the setting, Egypt. An alien land with a tyrannic ruler, his edict, a death decree. 
In chapter 1, verse 22, it says that Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. In Pharaoh's land, sex determines life and death for Hebrew babies. That's the world that little Miriam, because their first snapshot of her is a little girl, this is the world that she is inhabiting as she looks at her baby brother Moses and her worried mother Jochebed. But as we began to see last week in Peter Choi's fine sermon, that the women of the early Exodus story are courageous women who defy the oppressor. In Exodus 1, we had the two midwives we looked at last week, and this week we have three women. First, we have a terrified mother who has been hiding a child she can hide no longer and is going to desperate straits by putting her child in a basket, which at that moment in, her, in that time, she's thinking this is either a cradle or a coffin. And she puts it onto the River Nile in hopes of keeping her child alive somehow from deathly government policy that has othered her and her kin. Second, we have a princess, a daughter of Pharaoh with the worries and anxieties that are peculiar to power and privilege and prestige but also with a maternal heart who sees the basket of flesh and blood, sees the child that was foreign and yet has compassion on this child. Two women who could not be more dissimilar, Hebrew-Egyptian, slave-free, common, royal, poor, rich, relinquishing, finding, silent, speaking. Who will bring these two very different women together. The third unnamed woman who will we, come to know, we will come to know as Miriam. But at this point, just a little girl, an older sister, who saw her little brother placed in this floating cradle coffin and followed that basket at a distance. It says, an exceedingly dangerous thing for her to do and one that would change the course of history. She is the one who takes initiative to shape the destiny of this little baby we will come to know as Moses. She is the one. She speaks. I want you to see her there cowering in fear, legs shaking, looking at a royal princess who with one word could have her exterminated on the spot trying to work up the courage to say something. Sit there with her in that moment. What will I say? Should I say something? That's my brother. What do I do? Sit there with her by that riverbank, her brother's life hanging in the balance. Her life, too. Nevertheless, she persisted. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter told her, said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Skillfully crafted, she proposed the perfect arrangement. Moses would be nursed by his natural mother. The child grows to become the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
Phyllis Tribble said this in her paper, Bringing Miriam Out of the Shadows. If Pharaoh had recognized the power of women, he might well have reversed his decree. With no lineage, no birth announcement of naming ritual for her, standing at a distance, she speaks and unites two daughters for the sake of a male child. She negotiates, mediates, and leads. She initiates the plan that will deliver her brother. Humanly speaking, the Exodus story owes its beginning not to Moses, but to Miriam and the other women. Miriam Miriam stands for all the women in our lives who silently, painstakingly, courageously hold everything together. Out of notice, out of view, not looking for limelight, just preserving and enhancing and demanding life in the midst of death. She stands for all of you, whatever your gender identity or expression, who know that you are the person who has quietly held a family together or held a company together, held your office together, held your students' teachers together. held relationships between others together and wonders if anyone will ever notice. Consider yourself seen. And for everyone else, who are those people? Who are those Miriams in your life? What might you say to them today? That's Miriam the Courageous. Okay, second is, in the second reading from Exodus 15, so brilliantly read by Janet, Miriam the Prophet. Now we get her name. So for all this time, we got this nameless sister. Now we know the name, Miriam. She isn't mentioned again until after Israel goes through the Red Sea, but she was there for all of it, including all those years when Moses had cut and run. You remember the story. Moses kills an Egyptian oppressor, is banished from Egypt, goes into hiding with no intent of his own of ever returning to his people, no inkling that God would call him to come back. He's fat and happy where he is. And during that time, Miriam was the people's prophet for the decades that passed as Moses was in hiding. She was the pastor of her people in Egyptian slavery. Her ministry reminded them that God was real, that God heard their prayers, and that God indeed would make a way out of no way. Sidebar, Miriam was also single her entire life. She didn't see the need for self-legitimation through marriage. She knew who she was without a partner who would surely dominate her given the cultural moment. Will Gaffney, Old Testament scholar, says this in her book, Womanist Midrash, As a girl and later as a woman, Miriam had few real choices in her life. 
circumscribed as it was by the enslavement of her people. One choice that she seems to have exercised was not to marry, not to give birth, not to offer to the Egyptian empire any children from her body and her womb. She was also there for the entire leaving Egypt scene with its struggles for food and water, quail and manna in the wilderness, grumbling people and hostilities. She was there for all of that as well. She was there for the whole story, good, bad, ugly, and otherwise. But patriarchal patriarchal storytellers give Moses the spotlight. Phyllis Tribble again in her paper. In quiet, secret, and effective ways, these women, Hebrews and Egyptians, have worked together. By contrast, Moses makes noise, attracts attention, and becomes persona non grata to both Hebrews and Egyptians. So here in part two, at the shore of the sea, they've they've come through the Red Sea, and we have this song that's called the Song of Moses, the Song of Miriam, or just the whole thing called the Song of the Sea. And it's sung first by Moses, verses 1 to 18 of, of, of Exodus 15. We just read a few verses of it up here. But it's, it begins with Moses saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. And then Moses continues with all the details of, of going through the sea. And then, it seems like an addendum almost, Miriam pipes in, saying the exact same words. In verse 20, then the prophet Miriam, first person called a prophet, Aaron's sister took a t- in the Bible, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went after her with tambourines and with dancing, and Miriam sang to them the same thing Moses said, sing to the Lord, for he is gloriously, triumphed gloriously, horse and rider, he's thrown into the sea. Now, Scholars spill a lot of ink around what the importance of this Miriam repetition of Moses means. Here's the majority opinion, and I'm not going to go into all the different details on this. If you want the granular, I can send you articles. I I took two or three weeks actually preparing for this, and it's just so detailed. But the majority opinion is this whole song is Miriam's song, and editors have Moses singing it with the twist that the addendum of Miriam repeating what Moses said is not actually an addendum at all, but a natural call and response. And we're seeing a piece of it. And while in a patriarchal context, you might assume that Miriam leads only women in the liturgy of liberation, as she has written, she actually leads, it says, them, a masculine plural that is used as a common plural. Miriam the prophet, the musician, the liberation liturgist, leads all of them in prophetic song as she commands them all to sing. Pretty remarkable, huh? The second place we find Miriam the prophet is in the book of Numbers. Now, that was the last reading we saw from Numbers 12. Numbers is like Exodus again. A lot of the stuff that you know from the Exodus story actually took place in the book of Numbers. That's where we can read about it, all right? So it's Exodus part two, or Exodus the sequel, or Exodus again. And it says in Numbers 12, there's this event. Um, Now, before we do that, you just have to, let me give you just a little context, because you have to understand something. In Exodus 18, we have this event where 
Moses abandons his wife, Zipporah, along with her two sons. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, brings Zipporah and her two sons to Moses, but Moses only receives Jethro. File that. Because in Numbers chapter 12, this third appearance, this excavating of Miriam up to the surface, happens. It says, while they were at Hazaroth, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' siblings, spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. So the issue here is the abandonment of Zipporah and her children. He's shown up with another woman as his wife. I really believe this is the substance of Miriam's objection. That Moses is not paying attention and taking responsibility for his abandoned wife and kids. And while Moses is her little brother, he's also Moses. (laughs) And she is speaking truth to power at great expense and risk. As we see play out in our own political realities, constantly very few people will actually risk losing their status to speak truth to power. In the past few years, we have repeatedly seen those who are in the halls of power refuse to say an ill word about those with all the power. And I don't know, but if it does happen, it seems to me that it's almost always a woman who has the guts to do it. And Miriam is no different. She takes an enormous risk to speak up for Zipporah and her children. In fact, both Miriam and Aaron here, with the credibility of their experience and ministry among the people, probably say what nobody else will say. Or as we've come to think of it, they say, they're saying the quiet part out loud. No doubt Moses has made a lot of people uncomfortable with his behavior. No doubt this is undermining his leadership. Somebody has to say something. And so Miriam and Aaron do. Quick application here. The more power you have, the wealthier you are. The number of people in your life who will tell you the truth about yourself, the truth you don't want to hear, tends to shrink. And you're surrounded with people who like to say yes to you because they might need your money. They might need your help. And so you live in this bubble, very easily constructed, of confirmation bias. And you become a stranger, not only to others, but to yourself. Hmm. Do you have Miriams in your life who give you the benefit of feedback, (laughs) rightly given, of critique, coming out of love and care and concern. Moses needed his siblings to say the quiet part out loud. And the text goes on to depict, and this is people's depiction of God, mind you, like we said earlier, they depict God as angry about this. The editors of Numbers rehabilitates Moses' authority and primacy in the rest of this reading. 
Yet even as Miriam ends up with a seeming, doesn't say God did this, but a seeming consequence of leprosy, a leprosy as a result of confronting her brother, Moses prays for her deliverance. Miriam is told to camp with those who are impure and unclean for seven days, which is what a person with leprosy would do. They would go to sit in camp until they were healed. And after seven days, she was. But here's what's interesting, and this is kind of my favorite part. Are you ready? The verse says, So Miriam was shut out of the camp for seven days. Now, mind you, these are people on the move, right? They're in wilderness. They're on the move towards the promised land. Each day, they're picking up, and they're on the move until this day. Because it says, The people did not set out on the march until Miriam had been brought in again. They were not leaving their pastor. They were not leaving their prophet. They were not leaving the person who had been with them through thick and thin. They would wait. They would wait, refusing to go anywhere without her. No matter the Lord had decreed the primacy of Moses, no matter the divine anger, no matter Miriam is afflicted with leprosy, no matter they wait for Miriam and God apparently waits with them. I think God is the one waiting, refusing to venture forward without God's prophet, Miriam. She is their prophet and they are her people. And then lastly, part three of this fascinating person is Miriam, I'll call it the legend. (laughs) Miriam, the vindicated. Because what happens is, is the leadership struggles of Moses would seemingly never end. Of the three siblings, Miriam dies first, rather unceremoniously a few years later. She's early, easily in this passage when she confronts her brother. She's probably in her 90s, maybe over 100 years old. Moses is, you know, 95 to 90, say. Aaron's somewhere in between. And so, she never reaches the promised land. Neither neither does Moses, nor Aaron. After Miriam's death, the wells in the desert runs dry, its own rabbit hole of symbolism for another day. The people rebel again. God censures Moses and Aaron. Aaron dies, and the days of Moses are numbered. And so we might call these, this, these books that we're reading here, Exodus Numbers, more of the priestly material of the Hebrew Scriptures. And honestly, they seek to repudiate Miriam forever with only just a small mention of her death. But the prophetic material of the Hebrew Scriptures reclaims Miriam. It speaks boldly what so many had tried to deny, that in early Israel, Miriam belonged to a trinity of leadership. Moses, Aaron, Miriam. Why do I say that? Well, lest you think I've lost my mind and have allowed my love for Miriam to cloud my thinking, let's turn to the prophet Micah. Some 500 years later after Miriam's life, As Micah prophetically challenges Israel, you know the verse, probably heard it before, act justly, walk humbly with God, love mercy. He reminds them of their redemption story, and he says this, for the Lord God said, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, 
And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. It's just hard for me to overstate what a big deal it is <laughs> to that original audience to hear Micah include Miriam with Moses and Aaron on equal footing. The prophet Jeremiah is speaking to the defeated nation of Israel in exile. He envisions a day of grace and joy when all things would be made right, and he uses the vocabulary of the Exodus to do it. The divine, through Jeremiah, addresses the people as female and says this, Again, I will build you, and you will be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you will adorn yourself, are you ready, with timbrels, and will go forth and dance of the merrymakers. This is a direct reference to Miriam and the merrymakers at the Song of the Sea that we talked about just a few moments ago, recalling Miriam and her Song of the Sea and forecasting her restoration, Miriam participates in the God that's making all things right in the vision of the future. Okay, I'll stop with this. One more quote from Phyllis Trouble to end our time. Stepping back to view the whole, we see a story beginning at the bank of the river moving to the shore of the sea, continuing into the wilds of the wilderness, disappearing in the new land, and recovering there through prophecy and song. From overlays of patriarchy, Miriam's true portrait begins to emerge. Lo, the fragments the builders have rejected have become tesserae in a mosaic of salvation." Let all women and men who have eyes to behold this mosaic join Miriam in singing an updated version of her song of deliverance, which is, sing to the Lord, for God has triumphed gloriously. Patriarchy and its horsemen, God has thrown into the sea. Amen. Let's pray. God, whose name was called upon by Miriam, Give us her courage. Give us her moxie. Give us her resilience. Give us her insistence on justice. Give us her celebration of life. And in so doing, we know that we are merely asking for the life and the values of Jesus to course through our veins. The one to whom Miriam could scarcely dream about to permeate our lives it is in Jesus' name with the memory of Sister Miriam that we pray. Amen.